0: Chapter Four Part Two of The Stones of Venice Volume Two This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice Volume Two by John Ruskin. Chapter Four St Mark's Part Two. We are in a low vaulted room. Vaulted, not with arches, but with small cupolas Starred with gold and chequered with gloomy figures. In the centre is a bronze font Charged with rich bas-reliefs, A small figure of the Baptist standing above it In a single ray of light that glances across the narrow room, Dying as it falls from a window high in the wall. And the first thing that it strikes, And the only thing that it strikes brightly, Is a tomb, we hardly know if it be a tomb indeed for it is like a narrow couch set beside the window low roofed and curtained so that it might seem but that it has some height above the pavement to have been drawn towards the window that the sleeper might be wakened early only there are two angels who have drawn the curtain back and are looking down upon him let us look also and thank that gentle light that rests upon his forehead forever, and dies away upon his breast. The face is of a man in middle life, but there are two deep furrows right across the forehead, dividing it like the foundations of a tower. The height of it above is bound by the fillet of the ducal cap. The rest of the features are singularly small and delicate, the lips sharp, perhaps the sharpness of death being added to that of the natural lines but there is a sweet smile upon them and a deep serenity upon the whole countenance the roof of the canopy above has been blue filled with stars beneath in the centre of the tomb on which the figure rests is a seated figure of the virgin and the border of it all around is of flowers and soft leaves growing rich and deep as if in a field in summer it is the doge andrea d'andolo a man early great among the great of venice and early lost she chose him for her king in his thirty-sixth year he died ten years later leaving behind him that history to which we owe half of what we know of her former fortunes look round at the room in which he lies the floor of it is of rich mosaic encompassed by a low seat of red marble and its walls are of alabaster but worn and shattered and darkly stained with age almost a ruin in places the slabs of marble have fallen away altogether and the rugged brickwork is seen through the rents but all beautiful the ravaging fissures fretting their way among the islands and channeled zones of the alabaster and the time stains on its translucent masses darkened into fields of rich golden brown like the colour of seaweed when the sun strikes on it through deep sea the light fades away into the recess of the chamber towards the altar and the eye can hardly trace the lines of the bas-relief behind it of the baptism of christ but on the vaulting of the roof the figures are distinct and there are seen upon it two great circles one surrounded by the principalities and powers in heavenly places, of which Milton has expressed the ancient division in the single massy line, thrones, dominations, princedoms, virtues, powers, and around the other, the apostles, Christ the centre of both, and upon the walls again and again repeated the gaunt figure of the Baptist in every circumstance of his life and death, and the streams of the Jordan running down between their cloven rocks, the axe laid to the root of a fruitless tree that springs upon their shore. Every tree that bringeth not good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. Yes, verily, to be baptized with fire or to be cast therein, it is the choice set before all men. The march-notes still murmur through the grated window, and mingle with the sounding in our ears of the sentence of judgment which the old Greek has written on that baptistery wall. Venice has made her choice. He who lies under that stony canopy would have taught her another choice in his day if she would have listened to him. But he and his counsels have long been forgotten by her, and the dust lies upon his lips through the heavy door whose bronze network closes the place of his rest let us enter the church itself it is lost in still deeper twilight to which the eye must be accustomed for some moments before the form of the building can be traced and then there opens before us a vast cave hewn out into the form of a cross and divided into shadowy aisles by many pillars round the domes of its roof the light enters only through narrow apertures like large stars and here and there a ray or two from some far-away casement wanders into the darkness and casts a narrow phosphoric stream upon the waves of marble that heave and fall in a thousand colours along the floor what else there is of light is from torches or silver lamps burning ceaselessly in the recesses of the chapels the roof sheeted with gold and the polished walls covered with alabaster give back at every curve and angle some feeble gleaming to the flames and the glories round the heads of the sculptured saints flash out upon us as we pass them and sink again into the gloom underfoot and overhead a continual succession of crowded imagery one picture passing into another as in a dream forms beautiful and terrible mixed together dragons and serpents and ravening beasts of prey and graceful birds that in the midst of them drink from running fountains and feed from vases of crystal the passions and the pleasures of human life symbolized together and the mystery of its redemption for the mazes of interwoven lines and changeable pictures lead always at last to the cross lifted and carved in every place and upon every stone sometimes with the serpent of eternity wrapped round it sometimes with doves beneath its arms and sweet herbage growing forth from its feet but conspicuous most of all on the great rood that crosses the church before the altar raised in bright blazonry against the shadow of the apse and although in the recesses of the aisles and chapels when the mist of the incense hangs heavily we may see continually a figure traced in faint lines upon the marble a woman standing with her eyes raised to heaven and the inscription above her mother of god she is not here the presiding deity it is the cross that is first seen and always burning in the centre of the temple and every dome and hollow of its roof has the figure of christ in the utmost height of it raised in power or returning in judgment nor is this interior without effect on the minds of the people at every hour of the day there are groups collected before the various shrines and solitary worshippers scattered through the darker places of the church evidently in prayer both deep and reverent and for the most part profoundly sorrowful the devotees at the greater number of the renowned shrines of Romanism may be seen murmuring their appointed prayers with wandering eyes and unengaged gestures. But the step of the stranger does not disturb those who kneel on the pavement of St. Mark's, and hardly a moment passes, from early morning to sunset, in which we may not see some half-veiled figure enter beneath the Arabian porch, cast itself into long abasement on the floor of the temple, and then rising slowly with more confirmed step, and with a passionate kiss and clasp of the arms given to the feet of the crucifix, by which the lamps burn always in the northern aisle, leave the church as if comforted. But we must not hastily conclude from this that the nobler characters of the building have at present any influence in fostering a devotional spirit, There is distress enough in Venice to bring many to their knees, without excitement from external imagery, and whatever there may be in the temper of the worship offered in St. Mark's, more than can be accounted for by reference to the unhappy circumstances of the city, is assuredly not owing either to the beauty of its architecture or to the impressiveness of the scripture histories embodied in its mosaics that it has a peculiar effect however slight on the popular mind may perhaps be safely conjectured from the number of worshippers which it attracts while the churches of st paul and the frari larger in size and more central in position are left comparatively empty but this effect is altogether to be ascribed to its richer assemblage of those sources of influence which address themselves to the commonest instincts of the human mind and which, in all ages and countries, have been more or less employed in the support of superstition. Darkness and mystery, confused recesses of building, artificial light employed in small quantity, but maintained with a constancy which seems to give it a kind of sacredness, preciousness of material easily comprehended by the vulgar eye, close air loaded with a sweet and peculiar odor associated only with religious services solemn music and tangible idols or images having popular legends attached to them these the stage properties of superstition which have been from the beginning of the world and must be to the end of it employed by all nations whether openly savage or nominally civilized to produce a false awe in minds incapable of apprehending the true nature of the deity are assembled in st mark's to a degree as far as i know unexampled in any other european church the arts of the magus and the brahmin are exhausted in the animation of a paralyzed christianity and the popular sentiment which these arts excite is to be regarded by us with no more respect than we should have considered ourselves justified in rendering to the devotion of the worshippers at Eleusis, Elora, or Edfu. Indeed, these inferior means of exciting religious emotion were employed in the ancient church as they are at this day, but not employed alone. Torchlight there was, as there is now but the torchlight illumines scripture histories on the walls which every eye traced and every heart comprehended but which during my whole residence in venice i never saw one venetian regard for an instant i never heard from any one the most languid expression of interest in any feature of the church or perceived the slightest evidence of their understanding the meaning of its architecture and while therefore the english cathedral though no longer dedicated to the kind of services for which it was intended by its builders and much at variance in many of its characters with the temper of the people by whom it is now surrounded retains yet so much of its religious influence that no prominent feature of its architecture can be said to exist altogether in vain we have in st mark's a building apparently still employed in the ceremonies for which it was designed and yet of which the impressive attributes have altogether ceased to be comprehended by its votaries the beauty which it possesses is unfelt the language it uses is forgotten and in the midst of the city to whose service it has so long been consecrated and still filled by crowds of the descendants of those to whom it owes its magnificence it stands in reality more desolate than the ruins through which the sheep-walk passes unbroken in our english valleys and the writing on its marble walls is less regarded and less powerful for the teaching of men than the letters which the shepherd follows with his finger where the moss is lightest on the tombs in the desecrated cloister it must therefore be altogether without reference to its present usefulness that we pursue our inquiry into the merits and meaning of the architecture of this marvellous building and it can only be after we have terminated that inquiry conducting it carefully on abstract grounds that we can pronounce with any certainty how far the present neglect of st mark's is significative of the decline of the venetian character or how far this church is to be considered as the relic of a barbarous age incapable of attracting the admiration or influencing the feelings of a civilized community the inquiry before us is twofold throughout the first volume i carefully kept the study of expression distinct from that of abstract architectural perfection telling the reader that in every building we should afterwards examine he would have first to form a judgment of its construction and decorative merit considering it merely as a work of art and then to examine farther in what degree it fulfilled its expressional purposes. Accordingly, we have first to judge of St. Mark's merely as a piece of architecture, not as a church. Secondly, to estimate its fitness for its special duty as a place of worship, and the relationship in which it stands, as such, to those northern cathedrals that still retain so much of the power over the human heart which the Byzantine domes appear to have lost forever in the two succeeding sections of this work devoted respectively to the examination of the gothic and renaissance buildings in venice i have endeavoured to analyse and state as briefly as possible the true nature of each school first in spirit then in form i wished to have given a similar analysis in this section of the nature of byzantine architecture but could not make my statements general because i have never seen this kind of building on its native soil nevertheless in the following sketch of the principles exemplified in st mark's i believe that most of the leading features and motives of the style will be found clearly enough distinguished to enable the reader to judge of it with tolerable fairness as compared with the better known systems of european architecture in the middle ages now the first broad characteristic of the building and the root nearly of every other important peculiarity in it is its confessed incrustation it is the purest example in italy of the great school of architecture in which the ruling principle is the incrustation of brick with more precious materials and it is necessary before we proceed to criticise any one of its arrangements that the reader should carefully consider the principles which are likely to have influenced or might legitimately influence the architects of such a school as distinguished from those whose designs are to be executed in massive materials it is true that among different nations and at different times we may find examples of every sort and degree of incrustation from the mere setting of the larger and more compact stones by preference at the outside of the wall to the miserable construction of that modern brick cornice with its coating of cement which but the other day in london killed its unhappy workmen in its fall but just as it is perfectly possible to have a clear idea of the opposing characteristics of two different species of plants or animals though between the two there are varieties which it is difficult to assign either to the one or the other so the reader may fix decisively in his mind the legitimate characteristics of the incrusted and the massive styles though between the two there are varieties which confessedly unite the attributes of both for instance In many Roman remains, built of blocks of tufa and encrusted with marble, we have a style which, though truly solid, possesses some of the attributes of incrustation. And in the cathedral of Florence, built of brick and coated with marble, the marble facing is so firmly and exquisitely set that the building, though in reality encrusted, assumes the attributes of solidity but these intermediate examples need not in the least confuse our generally distinct ideas of the two families of buildings the one in which the substance is alike throughout and the forms and conditions of the ornament assume or prove that it is so as in the best greek buildings and for the most part in our early norman and gothic and the other in which the substance is of two kinds one internal the other external and the system of decoration is founded on this duplicity as preeminently in st mark's i have used the word duplicity in no depreciatory sense in chapter two of the seven lamps section eighteen i specially guarded this incrusted school from the imputation of insincerity and i must do so now at greater length it appears insincere at first to a northern builder because accustomed to build with solid blocks of freestone he is in the habit of supposing the external superficies of a piece of masonry to be some criterion of its thickness but as soon as he gets acquainted with the encrusted style he will find that the southern builders had no intention to deceive him he will see that every slab of facial marble is fastened to the next by a confessed rivet and that the joints of the armour are so visibly and openly accommodated to the contours of the substance within That he has no more right to complain of treachery Than a savage would have Who for the first time in his life Seeing a man in armour Had supposed him to be made of solid steel Acquaint him with the customs of chivalry And with the uses of the coat of mail And he ceases to accuse of dishonesty Either the panoply or the knight These laws and customs of the St. Mark's Architectural chivalry It must be our business to develop First Consider the natural circumstances which give rise to such a style. Suppose a nation of builders, placed far from any quarries of available stone, and having precarious access to the mainland where they exist, compelled, therefore, either to build entirely with brick, or to import whatever stone they use from great distances, in ships of small tonnage and for the most part dependent for speed on the oar rather than the sail, The labor and cost of carriage are just as great whether they import common or precious stone, and therefore the natural tendency would always be to make each shipload as valuable as possible. But in proportion to the preciousness of the stone is the limitation of its possible supply, limitation not determined merely by cost, but by the physical conditions of the material. For of many marbles, pieces above a certain size are not to be had for money there would also be a tendency in such circumstances to import as much stone as possible ready sculptured in order to save weight and therefore if the traffic of their merchants led them to places where there were ruins of ancient edifices to ship the available fragments of them home out of this supply of marble partly composed of pieces of so precious a quality that only a few tons of them could be on any terms obtained and partly of shafts capitals and other portions of foreign buildings the island architect has to fashion as best he may the anatomy of his edifice it is at his choice either to lodge his few blocks of precious marble here and there among his masses of brick and to cut out of the sculptured fragments such new forms as may be necessary for the observance of fixed proportions in the new building or else to cut the coloured stones into thin pieces of extent sufficient to face the whole surface of the walls and to adopt a method of construction irregular enough to admit the insertion of fragmentary sculptures rather with a view of displaying their intrinsic beauty than of setting them to any regular service in the support of the building an architect who cared only to display his own skill and had no respect for the works of others would assuredly have chosen the former alternative and would have sawn the old marbles into fragments in order to prevent all interference with his own designs. But an architect who cared for the preservation of noble work, whether his own or others, and more regarded the beauty of his building than his own fame, would have done what those old builders of St. Mark's did for us, and saved every relic with which he was entrusted. But these were not the only motives which influenced the Venetians in the adoption of their method of architecture, it might under all the circumstances above stated have been a question with other builders whether to import one shipload of costly jaspers or twenty of chalk flints and whether to build a small church faced with porphyry and paved with agate or to raise a vast cathedral in freestone but with the venetians it could not be a question for an instant they were exiles from ancient and beautiful cities and had been accustomed to build with their ruins not less in affection than in admiration They had thus not only grown familiar with the practice of inserting older fragments in modern buildings, but they owed to that practice a great part of the splendour of their city, and whatever charm of association might aid its change from a refuge into a home. The practice which began in the affections of a fugitive nation was prolonged in the pride of a conquering one, and beside the memorials of departed happiness were elevated the trophies of returning victory the ship of war brought home more marble in triumph than the merchant vessel in speculation and the front of st mark's became rather a shrine at which to dedicate the splendour of miscellaneous spoil than the organised expression of any fixed architectural law or religious emotion thus far however the justification of the style of this church depends on circumstances peculiar to the time of its erection and to the spot where it arose the merit of its method considered in the abstract, rests on far broader grounds. In the fifth chapter of the Seven Lamps, section 14, the reader will find the opinion of a modern architect of some reputation, Mr. Wood, that the chief thing remarkable in this church is its extreme ugliness, and he will find this opinion associated with another, namely, that the works of the Caracci are far preferable to those of the Venetian painters this second statement of feeling reveals to us one of the principal causes of the first namely that mr wood had not any perception of color or delight in it the perception of color is a gift just as definitely granted to one person and denied to another as an ear for music and the very first requisite for true judgment of st mark's is the perfection of that color faculty which few people ever set themselves seriously to find out whether they possess or not for it is on its value as a piece of perfect and unchangeable coloring that the claims of this edifice to our respect are finally rested and a deaf man might as well pretend to pronounce judgment on the merits of a full orchestra as an architect trained in the composition of form only to discern the beauty of st mark's it possesses the charm of color in common with the greater part of the architecture as well as of the manufactures of the east But the Venetians deserve a special note as the only European people who appear to have sympathized to the full with the great instinct of the Eastern races. They indeed were compelled to bring artists from Constantinople to design the mosaics of the vaults of St. Mark's, and to group the colors of its porches, but they rapidly took up and developed, under more masculine conditions, the system of which the Greeks had shown them the example while the burghers and barons of the north were building their dark streets and grisly castles of oak and sandstone the merchants of venice were covering their palaces with porphyry and gold and at last when her mighty painters had created for her a colour more priceless than gold or porphyry even this the richest of her treasures she lavished upon walls whose foundations were beaten by the sea and the strong tide as it runs beneath the rialto is reddened to this day by the reflection of the frescoes of giorgione If, therefore, the reader does not care for colour, I must protest against his endeavour to form any judgment whatever of this Church of St. Mark's. But, if he both cares for and loves it, let him remember that the school of encrusted architecture is the only one in which perfect and permanent chromatic decoration is possible and let him look upon every piece of jasper and alabaster given to the architect as a cake of very hard colour of which a certain portion is to be ground down or cut off to paint the walls with once understand this thoroughly and accept the condition that the body and availing strength of the edifice are to be in brick and that this under muscular power of brickwork is to be clothed with the defence and the brightness of the marble as the body of an animal is protected and adorned by its scales or its skin, and all the consequent fitnesses and laws of the structure will be easily discernible. These I shall state in their natural order. End of chapter 4, part 2